You're listening to ReachMD, and welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Today's discussion centers on the current state of evidence behind vitamins, herbs, and supplements in popular demand. What does the latest research recommend for use, and what should we be avoiding? Our guest is Dr. Mark Moyad, Director of Preventative and Complementary Medicine at the University of Michigan Medical Center. Host Dr. Brian McDonough is leading the discussion. Let's join them now. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian McDonough with Dr. Mark Moyad. And Dr. Moyad, first of all, it's a pleasure to have you with us. And I know from having heard you lecture and, and, and had the opportunity to hear you speak, you're very interested in different vitamins and the uses of vitamins and the way we can make our lives better. And I guess my first question right off the top is, you hear a lot of physicians critique vitamins and say there isn't necessarily quality controls. They're, they're made certain ways. The regulation's not there. Um, what's your thought about that? What's the pros and cons of, of what you see out of that? Well, there's several pros and cons there, actually. I mean, this is my 25th year of actually working in vitamins and supplements, and I think one of the criticisms that there is quality control that is lacking, I would have to agree with, especially going back in the early parts of my career where we didn't know for sure whether or not something, whatever it said in the label, I was actually in the bottle. However, we also have to give the industry a little bit of credit. And also a couple of the government regulatory boards some credit. I mean, the FDA has stepped in in the past few years, so now they have the authority to go in and actually do some randomized testing in small and large companies. I think we've seen the quality control go up substantially, and you can see that by various groups that look at supplements, whether it's consumer reports, consumer labs. So the quality control has definitely become much better to the point where some of the cheapest products on the market, in my opinion, are actually as good as the most expensive. However, there's always a however, right? Mm-hmm. It is not where we want it to be. And then that's particularly true, not so much with vitamins and minerals. It's true in one category, which is herbal products. Herbal products are, the four-letter word for it is just mess. Uh, there's no question that some of the herbals out there have active ingredients, but uh, whether or not those active ingredients are actually isolated like they were from the clinical trials, whether they're free, they're, they're free or low amounts of lead and cadmium and uh, other potential toxins, uh, that needs a lot more work. So when we're looking at herbs, you're looking at the potential there for risk because people maybe not even, not even if they're getting harm, but they may not even get what they think they're getting or the potential beneficial effects. That's right, because if you look at a good herbal trial, they were standardized. The compounds that we think are active in an herbal product were standardized, so you know you're getting the active ingredient. I, I give patients the analogy of, you know, forget aspirin for a second. Why not just go peel off a little bit of willow bark where aspirin came from and chew on it? Well, that's not going to exactly work. It might help a little bit, but the, the active ingredients aren't concentrated. It's a similar concept. You can't take a root or a plant and just shove it into a pill and say it's the same thing as the active ingredient. So, yeah, it, it is a problem, and, and we have to educate more the public and healthcare professionals on what to look for in, in, in these products. Lots of ways to go in this conversation in the direction, but one of the things I like about you is, I mean, you, you're a practicing physician. You understand medicine. You understand uh, health care. You work in a health system. Not as many people, at least you see when you read books and people who are talking about vitamins and herbal products, come from your background. Um, it's growing, but it certainly isn't where, where we'd like it to be. I keep hearing talks over the years, you know, more and more to- times it's going to be taught in medical school. Physicians are going to learn more. I really haven't seen that. I 
teach residents, and I don't see a lot of people coming out with a, with much more knowledge than I had, you know, twenty twenty five years ago. Wow, I mean, you know, the comment that you made sounds depressing, but it actually is depressing, and it's very true. I actually agree with what you said one hundred percent. There is all this talk of alternative medicine being taught, adequate dietary supplement education. I'm not seeing it. Instead, what I'm seeing are the very superficial layers. So someone offers a course, or I'm sorry, a class, or maybe a 15-minute lecture, and then the school or the hospital can then say, look what we offer in terms of education. So it's very superficial. There's nothing pithy about it. And I think that's what's found, uh, that's what I, uh, one of my frustrations also, that it, we talk about the importance of educating uh, about the various herbal products and supplements, but the truth is it's we have a long way to go and the The interesting thing is is that I always argue, and I agree with your earlier comment too that said we don 't have any people working full time I mean I try to work full time in this discipline, and i 'm playing catch up every week, just like anybody else would it 's moving that fast. But my argument is that I, I really think supplements and these herbal products and vitamins I think they 're going to see their finest day when we come to accept the fact that they work for certain high-risk situations or conditions. The idea that you take 20 pills to prevent 28 diseases doesn't make any sense with me, just like with a prescription drug. I, I think they very much work like prescription drugs do, and a little bit might help. Too much definitely causes harm, but where's that window of efficacy? So we still have a long way to go, not only just to teach it, but then to teach students, residents, where specifically can you allow a compound over-the-counter to be used, and when should you be nervous about it? And so if you, we really have leaps and bounds to go. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. My guest is Dr. Mark Moyad, and we're talking about vitamins and herbs, and we're talking a little bit about the educational process. And one of the things I wanted to lead to, you know, as a family doctor, um, and as a family doctor who's getting more and more involved with electronic medical records and meaningful use, we're talking about discharge summaries and med reconciliation of discharge, but I don't really see a lot of talk about vitamins and herbs and supplements and things that people are taking, and yet they have interactions that could be dramatic, but we seem to be still focusing on the pharmaceutical end. Yeah, they do have, they do have interactions that can be quite dramatic. Uh, one, one example is, you know, there's multiple herbal products out there that contain items called coumarins that look, act, smell in every possible fashion like coumadin. They are blood thinners. And so the, the possibility of either doubling up or increasing an interaction or possibly taking something that's doing the same thing. I give the classic example of fish oil. Fish oil has a qualitative effect on platelets, which, which basically means you can have someone going into surgery and they take one fish oil pill and they have a bleeding issue. You can have someone take 20 and they don't, but the bottom line is you're probably going to have to stop it because you can't predict it. And so just starting there in terms of the pharmacy side, the pharmacology of it, and the, drugs, the drug interactions, the drug supplement interactions, that has a long way to go. But at the same time, there are certain conditions where the interactions and the side effects have been low, but there hasn't been much credibility there either. So I try to keep it balanced. So when you do that and you educate and you talk to physicians, if you're going to look at, let's say, five major um, either, either vitamins or herbs which could have interactions or cause serious problems that people don't know, what would your top five be? Well, my top five for interactions, the, the one that we've had to memorize forever is probably, again, this starts off in the herbal world. The classic one is St. John's wort. Now, St. John's wort essentially 
what it does is that it can reduce the efficacy of a variety of prescription drugs in the way that it's metabolized. It's called the CYP3A4 inducer. And so we have a number of herbal products like that. I can almost give you a, a long list. So combining St. John's wort with the birth control pill, for example, not, not a smart move. It's not to say that St. John's wort doesn't have some efficacy in depression, but the idea of combining it uh, with anything that's affected by that pathway, which is about 50% of our prescription drugs, really has to make it still number one uh, overall on the list. So that, that's one of those kind of interactions that make me nervous. The rest of them come down to blood thinner interactions or blood thinner on top of blood thinner. So probably in my category is the omega-3 supplements, which goes back to the fish oil commentary, but also high doses of some of these omega-3 supplements. They make me actually very nervous uh, overall when you, t- when you take some of these. Um, there's some talk of some adulterated ginseng products possibly increasing blood pressure and affecting blood pressure medications, and that's true. We also have a lot of different uh, compounds that we see in, on the male side that can interact. For example, off the top of my head, uh, we see things that can increase levels significantly of nitric oxide. And these are some of these amino acid supplements, and which probably would make my three and four. You see, if, they, if anything says an athletic booster out there, you should get a little bit nervous about it because what these are are essentially vasodilators. And if you're already taking a vasodilator of any kind, you can see quite a significant blood pressure drop. And then probably number five are, I wouldn't put it necessarily in the prescription drug supplement interaction as it, as it is as if you see this compound run because combined with anything is a problem and by itself it's a problem. That's a category in itself. There's a new one out there that a lot of kids and adults are taking for a variety of situations, energy, they're taking it, uh, it's, they're taking it to, for athletic events, it's called DMAA. Uh, and DMAA is found in a lot of supplements that promise to keep you awake and to keep you energized, but it's really a glorified amphetamine. And I see it being banned within the next 12 months, but unfortunately I've, I probably see a container that has it once a week. Now, the things you would pick up without giving a name or saying, but you go to a convenience store, a 7-Eleven or wherever, and they sell these things that, you know, get, get you the energy at 2 p.m., those little things, quick shots, caffeine, different energy supplements, is that with that compound or is that something different? Possibly, but this is also in another category. So you can find it in there. You can find DMAA in some of those, uh, but you, what you tend to find these now more in people who want to enhance performance in terms of athletic events or exercise. So people are moving away. They're not moving away so much. They're still using the caffeine products, and they're using caffeine in disguise, like guarana. Guarana is caffeine in disguise. Caffeine is found in a lot of different plants. And they're looking for the next high or the next stimulant. And so you'll tend to find these at at your stores and your health food stores that, that promote Enhancement of athletic performance. These are very hot items right now between the baby boomers and the young athletes. We see people using it across the board, but they don't know. The, and they say, boy, I, feel I have all this energy and I'm awake, and if I take it later in the day, I can't sleep. They don't realize what they're taking. 
mm-hmm. unless they look for the actual ingredient. And most of the physicians and people treat probably aren't sure of it either because they don't necessarily have that knowledge either. They don't. In fact, one of the first articles on DMAA just came out in the Archives of Internal Medicine. It was actually an editorial piece. It was very well written. And then there was another. I just actually this morning I looked up for any new information, and uh, there was case reports of three uh, cerebral hemorrhages in an emergency room based on uh, DMAA use. So it's starting to pick up. You know how this is. By the time it trickles down, it's, it, it's going to be a while. Mm-hmm. So there are, your classic, there are your classic problems with over-the-counters that, that we've talked about, blood thinning effects, the St. John's warts. And then there's the new ones that you have to teach and you have to stay on top of. And, you know, and, and we also need to teach about what to look for in terms of a quality ingredient. And what I mean by that is we now have various organizations that are independent. They actually do a very good job. And if a supplement company is willing to pay a little extra money, they get tested by this agency, and the agency gives a seal of approval. And, and that's, that's very new. One of them is actually NSF that works for a, a lot of the professional sports teams, including Major League Baseball. So if you see that kind of stamp on your supplement, you, you know it's, it's free of these kind of contaminants and problems. You're listening to Reach MD. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. My guest is Dr. Mark Moyad, and we're talking about herbs, vitamins, supplements, and a lot of the issues surrounding that. I remember years ago when Mark McGuire uh, first was taking Androstein Dione, and I looked it up, and I said, wait a minute, this is like a testosterone steroid type of precursor. Wouldn't your body break it down, and it would act like a steroid anyway? You know, uh, people who are taking these things also must be getting directed and figure things out about the pros and cons of these different supplements. They are. You know, that Mark McGuire case, you know, these pro-hormones actually led, it was one of the cases that actually led to a banning of the sale of any sort of pro-hormone supplement over the counter. However, Congress allowed one type of pro-hormone to remain for sale because they argued it was different from all the others and didn't act like a pro-hormone, that's DHEA. And that's sort of a ridiculous statement, a ridiculous finding, because it does the same thing as Androstenedione does. Why did they allow it? Did they give reasoning? Or? Well, there's, there's my candid answer, and then there's my politically correct answer. My candid answer is that um, there was a lot of influence by uh, several groups in the supplement industry that convinced uh, several senators that somehow DHEA was slightly different. And... Um, Despite all the scientific evidence going down to that decision, uh, my candid take on it was the only way they could get the ban passed was if they banned everything but. So they either had to, if they wanted that ban passed, this was the only way they were going to do it. Otherwise, this would have been uh, struck down and then all pro-hormone supplements would have been allowed. So that's my candid answer as to how things happened that day. So there's a lot of politics, obviously, involved in these things as well. Do you ever see it getting back to the point where there would be regulations like there are in the pharmaceutical industry? Well, I think, you know, if you look at members of Congress and you look at, you know, various entities, you know, the majority of people, like you see with patients, the vast majority of people take some type of supplement. And it, they're very much, they're very possessive of them. They, they, they're raised, they feel strongly there should be some intervention, but it shouldn't be maximal. So... I don't know if I'll. I don't know if we'll see the kind of regulation I would love to see, uh, but the reality is what I think you'll continue to see are baby steps, whereby companies will be penalized severely if they put something on a label and then actually in the pill there's something different. I think we're def- we're definitely moving to that point. 
I, I also think that consumer demand will drive a new paradigm. The consumer's demand for environmentally friendly products will force companies to clean up their act, and they'll notice when they clean up their act, they'll actually probably make more money because they'll be you know, more natural and more organic and more friendly. But I think the kind of regulation that you're thinking about and that I'm thinking about, no, that won't happen anytime soon. One of the other things I want to ask you about, since we have a lot of physicians listening, if you want to learn more about this, I mean, if you're just going to say, I'm going to do my own education, I want to reach out and try to find things, where, where do you go? Well, besides shamelessly plugging all the articles I've written in, on PubMed, which I think is 130, which you can go look up drug supplement interactions, you can look at the latest takes on studies. Um, we actually have one of the first clinical guides coming out in 2013 on all aspects of medicine and what, what works and what's worthless. And I would look for that because that's been about a five-year undertaking to finally get to that point where we, can convince, where we could convince a clinical guidebook company that this is important. So that happened. In the meantime, uh, I would tell you that because this moves so quickly, that going to the PubMed site on a supplement that you've just heard about or you possibly want to learn about any new interactions, doing your own homework as a physician is very wise. And the DMAA example is classic. No one heard of that thing six, 12 months ago. If you do mm -hmm. a quick literature search, it's there. Um, otherwise, if you don't want to do your own homework, you don't want to pick up one of the future guidebooks, there are certain groups that you associate with um, quality control that do a pretty good job. Consumer Reports is one of those. They do testing. They don't accept any commercialization. And what they tend to write tends to be pretty accurate every time I read it on supplements. So people that trust certain names like Consumer Reports or Center for Science and the Public Interest, they should also trust these individuals in terms of most of their recommendations on supplements, in my opinion. So you can kind of whittle it out and figure it out by going to those sources and checking things out. You can whittle it out because I think it's also fair to say that the supplements that have some efficacy, so for example in osteoarthritis, I, I think there's some supplements there that look attractive and that can be combined with medications and prescription medications and have a good track record. Yeah, I mean, those sources aren't bad, but there'll be nothing to... Because this is such a moving target, uh, there, nothing will substitute a physician taking 30 minutes and just doing a quick survey of the products they're interested in one night, believe it or not, at mm -hmm. this point, because it moves so quickly. Um, and a classic example is uh, the DHEA, the DHEA pro-hormone we talked about. There are already alternative versions of that on the market, and somehow it... They're still allowed to be for sale, and they're going to show up in doctors' offices. And I know part of what you do is you speak with Omnia and in different locations educating physicians, and that's probably another opportunity to get a chance to go out and, and talk to groups. Well, absolutely. I think when I think there, and this goes back to your comment on education. What I do appreciate about what Omnia has done and some other groups is that when you look on there, there's actually a whole lecture dedicated to diet and supplements. It's highly unusual. Most of the big medical meetings that I go to, the traveling meeting where you can get CMEs, I, I'm struck by how little information exists in this category, yet everybody agrees it's so important. If you look at the ratings from the participants, they want more and more of it. So absolutely taking a look at things like Omni and taking a look at these sites and seeing if there's a lecture offered, because if there's a lecture offered, you, you know that it's gone through a lot of scrutiny. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, when I submitted my slides, for example, for these lectures, I mean, all the references are checked. You know, some of the slides are questioned. We have to provide references. It is a good source. In the future, in the future, what you're going to see in 2013 are also taped and CD sources where physicians can get credit by listening to these lectures, and we're working hard to make that happen. So you have opportunities, different opportunities to find out and get those types Absolutely. Of the diversity of opportunities within the next 12 months will be a lot different than I ever imagined. But again, it's going to require motivation and enthusiasm by the clinician, because otherwise it's not going to come to you. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough with Dr. Mark Moya. One last question. Why this field? What was it that got you interested and passionate? You know, in, you know, in, in medicine, you can go in almost any direction. What, what, what took you down this road? Well, I think several items. When I was 22, I wrote about cottonseed oil and its effect on male fertility. I got a grant in college, and I submitted this article to a journal, and it got published. And you can imagine being 22 years old and having an article that you write, a research that's actually published in a, a pretty well-known medical journal. So this idea that cottonseed oil... Um, what, even though we use it in cooking in different parts of the world, and it can be beneficial, when you get too much of a certain compound in it, it can actually cause infertility. It was so striking to me. And then soon after that, when I started my educational process, um, I was in Florida, and the L-tryptophan um, contaminant controversy happened. And if, for the listeners who don't know what that is, that was a contaminant found in in tryptophan, the dietary supplement that a lot of people use for sleep and relaxation, and this contaminant called e caused eosinophilia myalgia syndrome and led to lots of deaths around the United States. And I was actually a part of that investigation. So here you are in your 20s, and you're seeing the real power of natural medicine and the real dangers of natural medicine, and you're thinking, wow, I mean, who really has good knowledge in this category? You know, this is only going to get bigger, I thought to myself. And then suddenly, when I started working my first year at University of Michigan, the position got endowed by patients who were interested in just a doctor working full-time. They contributed several million dollars. You put all those pieces together, there's no, there's no turning back. Mm -hmm. This is what you want to do, and you're rewarded for doing it, and you love doing it, and you can play right down the middle. You can talk about the things that really work and are helpful, and you can really bring out bring to light the things that are really dangerous and i think one of the great things about it is as you say you as you start to learn you learn more you become an expert by virtue of the fact there aren't that many people doing it and you continue to keep up on something that's constantly moving that is it's constantly moving i mean the industry now people need to remember that nutrition was not a business when i started nutrition is a full-fledged business and i'm not just talking about supplements i'm talking the business of food nutrition itself so if you, if you look at the latest numbers by the CDC, it's really an over $30 billion pie, this alternative medicine pie. And people argue it's more than all of primary care brings in. But what people don't realize is that uh, over $20 billion of that has is, is now become the pill-taking portion. So the pill-taking portion has become so substantial, so esoteric in some ways, that really keeping up with it has to be every single day. I mean, I just look at vitamin D and calcium. Look at the controversies that we're going through right now with vitamin D and calcium just this week. Yeah, there's vitamin D stories coming out, seems like, every day. Absolutely. And that's just one of hundreds and hundreds of supplements. And, and we've talked so far in this session about potential interactions, potential dangers. Well, let me tell you, vitamin D has all those potential possibilities, whether it's an increased risk for hypercalcemia and stones, whether it's the addition of more vitamin D to food than we ever imagined. So then does that mean we have to start tapering down the amount we recommend in the pill form because so much is being added back in the food form? You know, these are all these things have to be addressed. 
And that's what you're seeing in clinical trials now. You're seeing uh, men and women uh, who are taking large amounts of calcium and vitamin D, but they're not necessarily getting them in pill form. They're getting them from food, which means doctors have to be more careful about what dosages they're going to recommend outside of the food forms. I have one more question. I lied. I actually, I was thinking, but as you were talking about food and the food industry, one of the things I have to talk about is the obesity problem we say have in our we have in our country, and clearly it's there. Um, part of it is dietary, but how much is high fructose corn syrup? How much is fried food? What do you see it as? I see it as you know we don't want to accept the fact that there are calories everywhere in inactivity, also at the same place, all everywhere to be found. So we are taking in more than we've ever imagined in, in the history of the world, and we are moving the least amount that we've moved in the history of the world. Those two combinations aren't very good. So when you're moving less than ever before and eating more than ever before, that combination, regardless of where the calories come from, is extremely concerning. Now, to give us a little bit of credit, and I do think ultimately we'll overcome this obesity epidemic, hopefully in my lifetime, you know, we are a nation that did one thing right. We're quitting smoking. And smoking is a very easy way to, to crank up your metabolism and keep off the pounds. So as we quit smoking and all these calories become available in less time for physical activity and the Internet, now we see this other epidemic that's sort of replaced it. So now we're challenged with that. I try to tell patients not to get too concerned by what I call medical minutia and look at the big picture which is if we can find a way, I don't care what the way is, you can pick any diet program you want, if we can find a way to draw back on several hundred calories a day and slightly increase physical activity time, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's at home, and I think you're going to start seeing it more in the workplace now in the next few years, um, you start to see a weight loss that uh, becomes significant. It's, it's not where we want it to be. But when we're able to do that, that's what we see in these trials too. There's a very famous trial in Boston done the, called the Pounds Loss Trial. They put patients basically on four different fad diets, and all of them involved just cutting back on some calories. And they all worked the exact same. And then when they looked at CT scans, and they looked at imaging studies of the liver, and they looked at visceral fat, they all had the same effect on internal tissues. So we should be, as physicians, very flexible as to how patients want to cut back on calories. And they should, we should work with them to find where that largest source is. Today, I'm actually seeing one of the largest sources of calories uh, from our fruit juices and alcohols, whether it's fruit juices in kids, which are 150 calories per eight ounces in some cases, which is more than alcohol, or as in the elderly population from uh, different types of alcoholic drinks that contain up to 200, 250 calories. So long answer to a short question, but I think what we've learned is the more complicated it gets, the more simplistic the answer. Dr. Poyad, thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. This has been a discussion from the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD. Be sure to visit ReachMD.com for access to this and other interviews of interest. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>